Hello, I'm Maurice O'Keefe and welcome to this week's podcast, The Battle of Jadaville. Between 1960 and 1964, the Irish Army forces were involved in a peacekeeping mission with the United Nations in the Congo. And on the 13th of September 1961, A Company, 35th Platoon, numbering 152 men and under the command of a carryman, Commander Pat Quinlan, fought in a fierce battle that lasted for six days and six nights. This was against the Katanganese Gendarmerie forces, numbering between two to 3,000 troops. And remarkably, no Irish soldier died in that event. I will examine stage by stage the events as they unfolded and led to a truce and afterwards a surrender. Now, Pat Quinlan and his men were used as hostages. And this also led to a very embarrassing situation for the United Nations and the Irish government. Walter Hegarty was a sergeant in the 35th Infantry Platoon and under the command of Pat Quinlan. I asked him how well prepared they were for the mission that they were about to face in the Congo. The Irish Army, this was their first foray overseas and they certainly had no experience. They had no officers who were experienced and they had no planners apparently who were experienced. And the troops gone out were green and red raw. They knew nothing about the job to be done. And don't forget that the UN had no experience either. They were only a new organisation as well. And they were sending us out in a great rush as a neutral country to try and ca- with others to try and calm the situation that was uh, abroad in the Congo. None of us were up to the task at that time. And here he explains the political situation in the Congo at the time. We found ourselves in a terrific time of upheaval and turmoil in the political life of the Congo. We were sent to uh, Elizabethville, which is the capital of Katanga. And Katanga was the province that was trying to break away from the the nation of Congo uh, in its entirety. And that couldn't be permitted for a number of reasons. And one of the most important ones was that it was the richest province in the Congo. It had a huge deal of mineral wealth. In fact, I'm told, and I read, that the bomb that exploded in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the um, uranium was mined in Katanga. So there's a nice little tie-up for you. But when we got there, there was all sorts of political unrest. And the army of Katanga wanted to secede from the Congo general. And the UN wouldn't allow it. And because of that, there was uproar and political upheaval. And uh, all sorts of people were trying to feather their own nests in, in the political line, of course. And the army was a very political army, unlike the Irish army, which wasn't a political army. This was very political and very dangerous as a result. And Leo Quinlan, who spent 25 years in the army himself, is the son of the late Commandant Pat Quinlan. He kept all his father's records and describes here why his father had to march into Jadaville. Yeah, well, here comes the the big question. I mean, why did they have to go to Jadaville? Uh, they were asked by uh, the, gov- uh, the Belgian uh, 
Spock. Uh, Spock asked for assistance in Jadaville from the United Nations to protect the white population who were feeling threatened by the uh, black community. Now, the white population there were the the workers and managers and so on of the the uh, mine the mines, the copper mines, um, the Union Minier uh, conglomerate. Um, so. What maybe people might not know is that there was already um, a company of Swedish troops with, I think, one Irish platoon already out there to do the same job. But they said, hey, uh, this is wrong. These people don't want us. And uh, the Swedes decided to pull out. And they pulled back and came back to Jadaville. Within um, a day or two, uh, the Irish, uh, i.e. my father's company, were told to go back out and do the same job to the surprise of many people, including uh, Major Mide of the Swedish company who had just left the place. Anyway, obeying orders, they went out of Jadville, I think the 9th of um, uh, September, 61. And how well armed were the 35th platoon? I asked retired Sergeant Walter Hegarty. We were very poorly armed for the job we had to do in the end. We were thought we were going out to, to protect the public because, you see... Mr. Spack, who was the Belgian Prime Minister at the time, through the United Nations had asked for protection to be sent out to Jadaville. And now we know, of course, there was a ply to get somebody, some UN out there that could be surrounded and captured. It was supposed to be an easy job. They were supposed to walk in and take over our little guns and ammunition and so on, but it didn't work out that way. And as a result of that, people were sent out and... The Belgian people didn't want them there at all. It was a huge mining town, and the mine owners were the Union Minier, and they, they, they were making fortunes, complete fortunes. And they didn't want people interfering. They didn't want the UN in Katanga or anything of the sort. So out we go, in our instance, but we had two armoured cars with us. Now, they were Irish armoured cars way back from the Civil War days and handed to us, over to us by the British. And indeed, we all knew they were more of a, an eye deterrent than they were, in fact, good armoured cars, not like the modern armoured cars. And they were easily pierced. But people wouldn't know that now. And they did a tremendous job for us, these two, the squadron, as they call it. Uh, of armoured cars that we had with us. These were real hero guys as far as I'm concerned. But so was everyone else. And what kind of resistance did Commandant Pat Quinlan and his men meet when they got to Jadaville? I asked his son, Leo Quinlan. Uh, very, very quickly it became very obvious to my father that uh, they were not welcome there. They, uh, far from being threatened by the uh, the black population. The whites actually control the black population because they control the jobs and there were a lot of whites there, uh, different nationalities. There, um, my father made contact with the head of Union Minier and got a very cool reception altogether. It became very obvious that the United Nations were not welcome in the town at all. He made uh, contact with the, with the mayor of the town, the same thing. He was more or less told, look, you're not welcome. Uh, smelling a rat, he started uh, digging in and uh, protecting his uh, base. And the interesting thing about the base, they were in a position that he, as a commander, probably would not have accepted if he ever thought he had to defend it. But it was what was rented by the United Nations, these villas and this uh, area at the edge of the, of the town. And he had no choice but to accept what he was given. 
But he realized there was something wrong and uh, that the position as given to him uh, was not uh, correct. So he sent back uh, his doctor who was with him uh, and one of his captains, uh, uh, Captain Liam Donnelly, back to Elizabethville to t- so that they could tell the Irish commander and get the word to Conor Cruz O'Brien, who was the head of the United Nations in Elizabethville at the time, to get word to them about the true situation in Jadaville. Uh, they went back, they were passed the information on, uh, they were told the troops still had to stay in Jadaville. Uh, and I remember reading and hearing from Captain Donnelly and from my father that Captain Donnelly was told, you can stay here if you like, you know. And Captain Donnelly said, nope, my troops are back in Jadaville, I'm going back. Well, <clears throat> we have to go back now to our commanding officer, and I'm sorry, but he is my hero. Okay? Is, this is uh, Pat Quinlan? Absolutely. Commandant Pat Quinlan. Pat Quinlan wasn't in the, day, in the job there a day when he realised he wasn't wanted either. And he didn't like the smell of the, the way the people were. They actually told us they weren't going to have anything to do with us. They would have no commerce with us whatsoever and sell us no goods or have anything to do with us whatsoever. Now, it didn't take a genius to figure out at that point we weren't wanted. And then he saw that there were a lot of troops around that weren't supposed to be there. I mean, we were going out to a small to face up to a small group of maybe two or three hundred people. But there were obviously many, many more troops around the place than that. And there were mercenaries there as well. So he started digging up the Congo as usual, and he had us all down in trenches as quick as he could. And then we found we weren't allowed to cross bridges. They had set up all over the place, they had set up... uh, armed patrols and um, defences against any bridges and roads. We were now hemmed in and we couldn't go anywhere. Meanwhile, we weren't being told a vital bit of information that was in planning even before we went out to Jadaville. What was that? That there was going to be another attack, just like the boys did before, where they took over all the gendarmerie barracks and what have you, they were now going to do it again, but they never told us in Jadaville. We knew nothing about it. We were sitting ducks. And when they attempted to do it, they found that they were waited upon. People knew they were coming, and they didn't get away with it this time. Really no choice. Really no choice. You know, they were attacked. They didn't attack anybody. They were at mass in the morning. I think it was about 7 o'clock mass every morning. Um... About 25 past 7, I think my father was shaving or something when I left Noel Carey, got a message that uh, there was an attack had been put in Elizabethville by the UN against the Tanganese. They were told it had gone in three hours before, and uh, now they heard about it, and uh, Lieutenant Carey went to warn everybody to be under alert, uh, because obviously everybody knew there'd be a reprisal immediately. And during Mass, uh, the reprisal came. Uh, the Katanganese started coming through uh, in an attack. And I remember many, many years ago as a cadet hearing about this thing from one of the NCOs who was in Jadaville. And um, apparently the Katanganese came in uh, in Land Rover-type vehicles with machine guns and they were going to go in, uh, shoot as many as they could, passing through, and there were other people waiting in the bush to come in then, attacking later. But they were stopped by fire from the Irish troops and I think one of the first Land Rovers or vehicles was disabled, uh, giving people time to run to the, their trenches, grab the rifles, run to the trenches and so on. And they were there ready to and able 
to uh, repulse the first attack. At 25 minutes past seven in the morning they attacked us, we were told that Operation Mortar, as they called it, had taken place. First we heard of it. And five minutes later we were attacked. Yeah. Five minutes later. Most of us were at Mass. But we had people in the trenches too. We weren't all that foolish. And when the first guys came rushing into us, at Mass time, quite obviously they had been told by somebody, these guys go to Mass at half past seven in the morning. They came in to attack us, only they met fire from our trenches and were driven off. The rest of us, of course, scattered back to our preordained places into the trenches. And then the battle, or what they call the Jadavin incident, commenced. And we had a few days of great fun, firing and shooting and trying not to be killed. But what about keeping the morale of his men up? He he didn't have to work so hard on that, but then that's easy for him to say, but I know that being in the army myself, uh, you keep the morale up by, I suppose, your your example, and I think he gave good example. And you know, people speak well of him on a physical basis, going around in the trenches from time to time and talking to people and so on. So I'm sure he did what every uh, officer or, or NCO will have to do when the men under the command by just example. What was incredible was that uh, none of these men were killed. That's true. That's true. That is the big thing. And, um, you know, they appreciated it. Uh, I know that because later uh, things happened uh, around Christmas that showed us. But anyway, at that time, uh, he had a good defensive plan. And I don't know if you know much about military stuff, but a perimeter defense is the most difficult defense to operation to carry out, you know, because you're the, the enemy can come from any direction and where do you have your reserve and where do you react to and so on and so forth. But he had a classical defence, classical defence, and he dug in everywhere. And um, I remember, as again, as a young cadet meeting uh, a sergeant, uh, Walter Hagerty, who is now a good friend. And when he heard my name, he said, are you anything to Pat Quinn? And I said, I am. He said, that bloody man made us dig everywhere we went in the Congo, he said. We, d- we dug everywhere, but he said it saved us. I also spoke to now-retired Corporal John Gorman, who was in the trenches there at that time. I first asked him how long they were dug in, and were there any attempts made to get reinforcements? We were there for six days and nights, and uh, uh, our company commander, Pat Quinlan, was, uh, I suppose, sick to the teeth, looking for reinforcements. Uh, And... He even uh, sent a man out. He posed as a, as a sick man uh, with uh, our doctor, who was Dr. Clone, Joe Clone, uh, into battalion headquarters to stress how urgent this was. And uh, he was told, well, you'll have reinforcements in the morning. But when he got up in the morning and he was told, well, the reinforcements will follow. So they never did. So we were still on our own, you know. How how severe was the firing and, and the shooting? Did it, was it continuous? No. These guys just go off, I swear to God, for a siesta. But when they had their rest, they came back. And they had the initiative. They could attack us. And they had that darn fugajet that came over. I hated that fugajet. I was afraid of that fugajet. Because I knew I couldn't do a darn thing about it. I couldn't do a thing about the jet. 
the guys coming up the road to attack me. These I could deal with. Or hope I could deal with, but not the Fugage yet. And they had armaments, which they did not use very well, in my opinion. They had 81 millimeter mortars, which means they should have stayed away from us and bombed their heads off us. But they didn't. They came within range of our 60 millimeters, and our guys blew them to bits. Blew their mortars to bits at this remove, shall we say. Oh, well. How many of you were... Uh, were shot, injured? Injured, five of us. Including yourself? Including myself. What happened? To the five men? No, to yourself. I was moving in my lines one evening. It was nearly dusk. I thought I was kind of safe. And then I heard four mortar bombs going off. Two, a slight pause, and then two more. So I knew there was four coming into us somewhere along the line. And I was, didn't take any notice of it. We, we marked were fairly normal these days. And then I heard the whistling that were coming in my direction. I threw myself into what I thought was a very thin groove in the ground, which incidentally afterwards I could never find. But on that moment I saw it, and I threw myself into this little flat bit of ground, and two marked went off in my immediate vicinity. I was up like a shot run out of there like a greyhound out of a kennel and running like heck away from that spot because I knew the next two mortars were going to land there too because I hadn't time to change the aim. And then I felt my pants flapping wet against my foot and I realised I'd been hit and I got back to my lines and told the lads I'd been hit lads so they started scrounging around looking for me and they found a couple of little bits of mortar scraps here and there in my buttocks. And uh, I said, get a few blankets and throw them on because I'll surely go into shock. And I did. And damn it, the CS, Prendergast, and a couple of lads came along and tried to walk me back and I collapsed. I was so ashamed. My legs just went from under me. I was so ashamed. These these were men that were out there fighting and here was I with a couple of little scratches after collapsing. Why wouldn't I be ashamed? And Leo Quinlan remembers reading in his father's notes that the attempts were made on numerous occasions to get reinforcements. Many occasions, as I've as I've read in the notes and so on, my father's notes, he did ask for reinforcements to come, both in English language and in Irish language. And uh, they said, yes, we will try, we'll try. But eventually reinforcements were sent, but probably they were sent too late, probably... Uh, maybe maybe they could have done better, maybe not, but it's very difficult now to say, uh, not being on the spot there. It's just a pity they weren't able to get across the Lufira Bridge. And in fairness to them, some of them were killed. Um, but what was it, the major problem, I think, tactical problem at the higher level, was that they pulled back from the bridge, not having failed to get through. They said, we were returning to Elizabethville. So but the very fact of them t- returning the 80 miles back to Elizabethville left the Irish out there in Jadaville with absolutely no moral support or physical support or and were, and they were seen to be totally vulnerable in the eyes of the enemy. Look, even your own people have gone back. So when it came to ceasefire negotiations and everything, they were at a distinct disadvantage. And I know that from radio messages that my father asked, don't pull back, stay near the bridge. Because if it, it, just purely from a bargaining position, 
having a relief column on the bridge while you're negotiating in Jadaville would have been stronger than if they were already gone back to Lizardsville and they're left on their own Jadaville. Yeah. This, this, this was a serious situation. Now, let me say something about the two groups of people who tried to take that bridge and get across to us. Twice, Force Cain, they were called on both occasions, under com- uh, the command of Combatant Cain of the Irish Army. These guys did a great effort, made a great effort to get to us. But when they didn't get across the bridge on the first initial thrust, they were never going to get across it. And what were the odds when it came to matching up the strength of the Irish troops against the Katanganese Gendarmerie forces? When we were surrounded and obviously unable to move out of where we were because if we stood out of our um, out of our trenches, we would be an easy meat for the huge amount of people who are now surrounding us. And that's put down at approximately 2,000 troops. And also the civilians had taken up arms against us. No. So, so to put this in context, uh, you were numbering roughly 150 men. 150. You, you were surrounded by 2,000? Two, At least. Firing oh, yeah. on you? Firing, yes. And, yes, my God. Yes. And we were only in a perimeter of about 250 yards by 150 yards. We were, we were very tight. We, you see, Pat Quinlan, during the course, had removed or moved our trench line and our front lines tighter and tighter to make it harder to get at us. You see, you could infiltrate if we're spread out. But when you're in tight, they'll have to come in through your front door. And he he was a terrific man. And everybody there, as far as I know, respected him and would have died for him. If he had said fight on on the last day, we'd have fought on. Don't you have any doubt about that? Was that the morale of, of the soldiers at the time? Were, yes. were, were they prepared to, to, to fight to the last? Yes, they were. There was no question about where we were going to fight to the last. We were going to do whatever Pat told us. If Pat says fight on, we'd have fight on. When he said cease firing, we cease firing. He, he had grown. He had taken precautions all along the line. From the first day we gathered together in at Lone Barracks, that man had started drilling us as though he knew we were going to come up against something terrible in the end. And he was right. But the whole lot of us looked up to Pat Quinlan. He was a sort of a, we won't say a god, a demigod, just a demigod, uh, for us, for all of us. And uh, we would fight on. Well, as the week progressed, our state became powerless indeed. In that, we were running out of ammunition, water, was another thing that had gone bad. He had filled every container he could find, but after five days in that area, the water was, first of all, being used up, but what was left of it was really bad now. It was no longer useful. The the danger, and of course, I say our ammunition and our food was gone. Now, there's a lot to be said about the food. We were supposed to have 10 days emergency rations sent with us, they were coming, like the ammunition we were supposed to have and the mortars we were supposed to have and everything else we were supposed to have. They're all coming. They never came, of course. More questions that were never answered. Anyway, I get annoyed when I think about it. And when it came to the point of agreeing a truce, was that a hard decision to make? Yes, yes. Uh, it was the most difficult thing he had to do in his life. 
But I think, you see, he just didn't take this Jadavil thing into a, in isolation. Uh, he was aware of the bigger picture. He was aware that peace talks were negotiation is the whole United Nations mission out there, etc., etc., etc. He was quite a religious man, my father. Uh, tough guy, but he was quite religious. And, you know, uh, he, he said in his letters a few times, you know, about the Blessed Virgin was there on his shoulder from time to time. And he didn't feel comfortable about killing people. Um, he didn't feel that they were there to be killing Africans, as he said. Uh, they were there to keep the peace, not to be doing this. Uh, so you had a, a that plus other things, uh, I suppose, bothered him a little bit. Uh, but I suppose the overriding thing was he wanted to bring all his uh, men home alive. He knew that if he continued fighting, that they couldn't last much longer. They hadn't very much uh, weaponry or ammunition left. They had certainly no water. It was stifling hot. Uh, they would have been suffering from malnutrition and uh, dehydration very, very quickly. So he made a decision which was extremely difficult and which some people didn't agree with, but I think the 140-something people he brought home alive did agree with, and certainly their families did. And certainly in hindsight and history has proven that uh, it was the right decision, but a difficult one to make. We were tired. We couldn't get sleep. How could you sleep? Uh, we had men on duty and others trying to rest. But if you think you can sleep in these conditions, you're a better man than I am. I was reading the Lima Flaherty book in my spare time. And delighted to have it too in my pocket. Spare time was when you weren't in the trench. So the week was dragging to an end. We were running out, uh, out of ammunition, food and water. And no help. And no light from the shore either. The battalion weren't able to give us any kind of reasonable assurance that somebody could come and help us. We were isolated. And then they arranged a ceasefire. Which was fine with Pat Quinlan because Pat Quinlan hadn't gone out there to shoot anybody. Pat Quinlan had gone out there to protect the public who didn't want them. And you were under the impression so that there was a ceasefire there, in place? Oh, there was definitely a ceasefire. Yes. And you had come out of cover, yes. handed over your large, large weapon. weaponry, yeah, yeah. and you were surrounded by the gendarmerie the gendarmer. and, and uh, mercenaries. Yeah. The Minister of the Interior, I think it was, yeah. came and he told Pat Quinlan that he would have to surrender. And we were all standing out there in the open. Yeah. So, I mean, that to me, if, if people would look at that as a surrender, well then... You know, they have to. They would have to be there to at see exactly how it happened. At, at that stage, were you fearful for your lives? Well, that's one of the things that Pat Quinlan looked for was for our well-being and our safety. You know, because you you have to realise there was a lot of those people killed, and we would have been in quite a lot of danger, really. I suppose if if. If things want, if it, if it went wrong, we were just gone. Well, let me clarify one thing first. <clears throat> uh, it wasn't a surrender, you know, and people who might listen to this, uh, who are there, might like to have this emphasized. It was a ceasefire. Big difference. It, there was an agreed written ceasefire between him and the uh, his counterpart on the opposite side, and of which I, I have a copy of it, written in English and French. A ceasefire 
which uh, said that the Irish could keep their weapons, that they would have joint patrols between them and the Katanganese, and that they would just generally keep the peace and see where things would go. But as soon as the uh, ceasefire was called officially, it then it became a surrender in the eyes of the others, the enemy. So you can say that... The was company, there trickery involved yes, then? Uh, obviously, obviously. Uh, the, 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 the Katanganese did not live up to the terms of the written ceasefire. And, I mean, the, this uh, document exists today. I have the original. Yeah. And I asked retired Sergeant Walter Hegarty, what happened when there was a wireless communication made with headquarters? Uh, was there any orders given to the troops at that time? When the gendarmerie asked for a ceasefire, that was no problem to Pat Quinlan. Of course there was a ceasefire. He was never there to fight a battle anyway. And don't forget he was he was in contact at this stage, he was in contact with headquarters back at Elizabethville and he was finding out from them that they were also in the throes of arranging ceasefires and what have you and that it would be all sorted out soon and everything would be grand. Now don't forget, at the same time we had no electricity and our batteries were running down on our um, wireless sets, the ones that were giving us communication with headquarters. And there was intermittent uh, communication. So when he asked for instructions from headquarters as to what he now should do next, what should he do next, he got no definite reply. In fact, he got a reply with something, something said like, God bless you. But nobody would say to him, fight on or surrender. And the extraordinary thing was, hard to believe, and any military man listening will find it incredible, he was sent out to Jadaville without written orders. That is a high-class crime in the army. A person being sent out on detachment should have clear written instructions what to do. He got none. And at the time that we had the ceasefire on, he could still get no instructions from headquarters. Surely somebody must be able to answer that. He didn't get the instructions and he was left to his own devices. And I'm only grateful that I didn't have to make the decisions that he had to make. And what happened to Pat Quinlan's men after the surrender? They were imprisoned first in Jadaville in the hotel, I think it was called Hotel Europe in Jadaville. They were reasonably well treated. Uh, in fact, a lot of people, a lot of the enemy came up and congratulated them on their defence and how good they were as soldiers, etc. They were treated with respect. Um, I think they used to call my father the Irish Major or something like that in French. Um, they were fairly well treated and then guards changed and now I don't know all the circumstances but then they began to be less well treated particularly they were, the enemy were probably a little bit upset when they found there were no dead Irish and they had people say something like 300 of their own casualties and they were digging up where the Irish defensive positions were looking for dead Irish bodies couldn't find anybody and this didn't make them too happy either one thing you have to remember, in Jadaville at the time, there were other people as well, uh, you know, women, uh, old women, That uh, one old woman in particular who was caught within the Irish area, uh, and she, she was a very brave lady, Belgian lady, and um, 
not everybody hated the Irish. Even even their enemies didn't particularly hate them. I suppose they were soldiers, paratroopers, and so on. They respected them, you know. But anyway, they were in Jadaville for a number of weeks, and um, later they were moved to Colwezi, and eventually they were released. I think it was after about six weeks, released in October. Did you realise when you were in there that you were hostages, that you were being used as hostages? I did. Why? And you were straight away... Well, it was plain common sense to me that we were more valuable to them alive and no use at all to them dead. We were there and we could be used as a bargaining chip. It was it, it was a kind of a chess game. We were a pawn. And I, I felt that we would get out of there even though we came across some mighty strange occurrences in the meantime. We had been moved later on onto a place called Colwezi where we were kept for a large portion of the time, maybe they thought we were too near and maybe rescuable still in Jadaville. We weren't, of course, but maybe, I don't know. They moved us to Colwezi anyway. And we made, there was a couple of abortive attempts to release us. Well, one abortive attempt to release us. We were brought into to Elizabeth one on, on one day and then whatever negotiations were going on broke down, we were brought right back out again. And the second time we were brought in, Pat had made up his mind, because I was in the bus with him, he made up his mind that whatever happens this time, we're not going back. I remember my father telling me a story about, um, on the route back, they stopped at some village, and uh, they thought they were going to be all killed because they were herded out of the buses they were in. Uh, All the women in the villages were chanting and waving knives, we will have meat tonight, this type of thing, as it was described to me. And they thought they were in serious difficulties. And what happened was a Belgian officer, who my father doesn't know who, his name, he used his forceful personality and a few kicks and whatever uh, against the black guards and uh, forced them to desist whatever they were thinking of doing and allowed the Irish to get back onto the buses. You know, it was a very tense situation, but this Belgian, my father often said, probably saved us from massacre. To tell the truth, I wasn't one bit sorry to shake the dust of the Congo off my feet at that time. It was a very, very dangerous place. When you got back to Ireland, uh, were you greeted by by the government? Were you greeted by politicians? Were you greeted by anyone? No, sir. We were not greeted by anybody. So what did happen? When we got back home, we went in and we were sort of debriefed in Dublin. I remember that well and being asked if I was all right and so on and so forth. And I was promptly slapped with a, uh, an opportunity to go immediately on leave. I think it was a month they gave me on leave. Straight away. And everyone else got the same. That had the nice, neat effect of splitting us up nice and quickly. The only real single contingent that got anywhere together were the ones that went to Atlone. Military historian Michael Whelan and a native of Tala and a member of the Irish Defence Forces for 16 years talks about Commandant Pat Quinlan. He was a very brave man. Um, basically, uh, the, the, the company in Jadaville, the 150 men as I said from Athlone, basically most of them were drawn from Athlone, although there was a few people from other counties, even from Dublin. Uh, there's one or two living in Tala here where I'm living at the moment. Um, he led them unnervingly um, any man I've spoken to from a company have nothing but the best to say about him. He was a brilliant leader for his for his time. 
He was probably the first soldier since the Civil War to actually lead a live company in defence. Something which 20 years before and 10 years before in Korea and in the, in, in the Second World War was an everyday occurrence. The British Army were probably doing it a lot. But that's the first time the Irish did something like that. And this should have been a lesson. As far as I'm concerned, this should have been a lesson which even today should be taught to every recruit coming into the army who's, who's learning how to act in a company in defence. And he did that. I think it was very, very low-key. Um, uh, basically, for years, nothing much was ever said about it, of course. It's all been kind of forgotten about or the whole incident. And um, it's only now that things are coming out about Jadaville. Uh, you know that's where it's out in the open and where people can talk about it and uh, there's no shame attached to it uh, in fact it was a brilliant piece of work the company a company 25th battalion after they fought for this week and ran out of fuel and water and ammunition and after the failure of two relief columns went into captivity and they endured great hardship in that captivity up for nearly six weeks uh, they were treated very bad by the gendarmerie which would be the Congolese force they were in conflict with and uh, they felt that they were let down by the battalion and the battalion commander. Uh, whether that's justifiable or not, I'm, I'm not sure. There's, a, there's pros and cons of that as well, but they felt let down. And when they returned home to Ireland, let's say you might have a guy from A Company who was back home in Athlone and he was playing a football match and that team he was playing for happened to be losing at the time. You'd have people on the sideline from other units in the army saying... Are you showing the white flag? You see? So that's what they had to put up with for years. And the story was kind of hidden away, basically, and these guys lived their lives, made them passed away, you had drinking habits and stuff like that. It's like the Vietnam story, fellas coming home not wanted, although on a, a minor scale to the Vietnam story, but that's what they had to put up with, you see, and made them into the grave. So there was that rivalry uh, are you shown the white flag, which means you're a coward, basically. You didn't fulfil your mission, like you, you didn't. Basically, you should have fought to the death, like what happened in the Ember and what happened in the Battle of the Tunnel, where fellas were killed and they have been remembered. Yeah. But this was a victory which was taken away from them because they went into, into captivity and basically put the United Nations, the Irish Army and the Irish government into a hostage situation. So any other activity which the United Nations wanted to carry out couldn't go forward until the hostage situation had been, um, how would you say, resolved. And those guys were brought back to safety. Now, you must remember that during the period while the fighting was going on, there was no such thing as ringing Ireland and speaking to somebody live. So any reports that were filtering back were going back to Ireland and the people in Ireland were hearing that 57 Irish soldiers had been killed which was not true, but you couldn't justify, you couldn't say whether it was true or not, you see. So the fear was there that, wow, it was a massive Irish man died. So that's people's husbands, sons, fathers, uncles, you see. So remember what Ireland was like in 1960, 61. It's not nothing like what Ireland is, this, is today. Well, it was, I suppose, deliberately forgotten about because things happened out there, not the Jadaville situation, just the United Nations situation in general. I mean, if you read the reports about what happened there, uh, Cruz O'Brien never told his bosses what he was doing. Uh, the military people didn't tell their bosses what was happening in Elizabethville. Um, 
uh, Dyke Hammarskjöld uh, was flying out to the Congo to to check on the situation, and he landed somewhere else of, overnight. And then, then he was told about the attack that went in on the 13th in Elizabethville, 13th of September. He didn't sanction it. He never knew about it. Um, United Nations sent their own people out to uh, check the situation later, and reports are written about it, which just you know uh, hit hard at the fact that. Uh, the people in power who should have made the decisions were not informed. So it was quite embarrassing for the United Nations. And to have anything else embarrassing about being left out in Jadaville as pawns and a big, bigger chess game, etc., it was more or less, don't talk about this, don't talk about this. You know, so you had that element. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of self-protection uh, later on, I imagine. The United Nations didn't cover themselves in glory in the Congo, generally speaking, and Jadaville was just one part of it. And so I think that's the reason. Uh, it was an embarrassment to Ireland, to the army, to the United Nations and to individual soldiers in the, in the Irish army uh, at the time because it, it, it delivered Ireland and the United Nations and the Irish army into a hostage situation and or in other situations where, or, where there was Irish soldiers involved like the Niamba ambush and the Battle of the Tunnel and Elizabethville and other incidents, Irish soldiers fought bravely as they always did. And in most of those incidents, an Irish soldier died. So you had a hero, you see. The guys who fought in Jadaville, this is my opinion only, the guys who fought in Jadaville, 152, I don't think there was, were all heroes. But they put Ireland into a situation because they did not have definitive orders. They ran out of field, water and ammunition. They were surrounded. Two relief columns could not get through to them because of the force they were up against. And they fought that force, which was many times greater than their own size, and without inflicting too many casualties and being called murderers, basically, they were out there as peacekeeping soldiers on the foreign policy of the Irish state. They were Irish citizens in an Irish uniform, in a United Nations uniform. You see the greater thing there? And they went out there, and instead of killing thousands of soldiers, they fought, and because they surrendered and went into captivity and put Ireland in a... To put these entities into a hostage situation, that's why it was an embarrassment. Pat Quinlan, who had retired from the army as a colonel, came to my house to ask permission to print in his history of the company a letter that I had written to a quartermaster sergeant back in Ireland during the actual affray at Jadaville. And I, of course, said yes. And it was then he revealed to me that people had suffered including himself, to some degree, uh, as a result of Jadaville and people thinking that maybe they had quit and were cowards. Now, that didn't seem to upset him relating to himself, but he was fiercely adamant that his boys, as he called them, were the bravest of the brave. I know the message that uh, Pat Quinlan got uh, when we were taken hostage in Jadaville was are you uh, abandoning your men that was a terrible thing to say to that man because Pat Quinlan would no more abandon his troops than the man in the moon he would never do that never you know and this is the reason I, I felt all my life so bitter towards the people who done that to Quinlan because I waited and waited and waited 
and I remember saying to him one evening in the Royal Hotel, Pat, someday it'll be put straight. And I can see him there smiling at me as much as to say, John, never a hope. He's dead and in his grave now. Things are put right. Uh, and I hope to God somewhere, somehow, he will know. And the rest of the lads is up there with him. They were never honoured up until recently. In 2006, um, they unveiled a monument in Athlone and a plaque on the wall there. And uh, the Minister for Defence publicly uh, acknowledged their sacrifice. And you will see in the back of the book there, which you, which you have, you'll see the inscription from the from the plaque, on the, which is on the monument there, you know. So they have been, how would you say, exonerated, if you like. But after 40 years, it's too late for many of them, you know. But even now, I think there can be a lot more done to um, to tell that story, which is, I think, is a very important part of the Irish historical narrative, especially Irish military narrative. You know, so you have to ask yourself questions like, why did that happen, and what was the political situation, and all that. You know, and I reckon it's because it was they were an embarrassment. What, what happened, which they sh- which should never have happened. It should not have been an embarrassment. It should have been a lesson. It should have been a lesson. Teach the soldiers what happened and teach the country. These men were heroes and they still are. Well, we've come to the end and I hope you enjoyed listening. My name is Maurice O'Keefe and if you would like to visit us on our website and explore all the other recordings that we made down through the years, visit us on irishlifeandlore.com. Thank you for listening.